0: History This Week, October 15th, 2001. I'm Sally Helm. In the office of Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, an intern and a volunteer are opening the mail. And when the intern gets to this letter, it seems perfectly innocuous. The handwriting is childish. The return address is for a fourth-grade class in New Jersey. She cuts off one corner of the envelope with scissors. And suddenly, white powder falls onto her dark gray skirt and black shoes. It gets onto the desk in front of her, onto the clothes of the volunteer in the room, and into the air of this Senate office building. The intern quickly puts her bare finger over the opening in the envelope to stop more powder from getting out. She alerts the authorities, and soon, the worst-case scenario is confirmed. Anthrax. The intern and the other people exposed in the Senate that day survive. But this is the latest in a string of attacks that will eventually leave 17 people sick with anthrax and five people dead. The first case shows up in Florida, where a newsroom worker dies from anthrax. Then letters show up at news organizations in New York. A baby, the child of an ABC freelance producer, ends up testing positive for anthrax poisoning. Postal workers are terrified. Some of them get exposed, get sick, and even die. And all this really turns up the anxiety in a country that is already on edge. The September 11th attacks happened just weeks before the letters started coming, and it's not clear who's sending them or where anthrax might show up next. Some people start sending copycat letters with fake white powder. Law enforcement agents are flooded with reports of possible anthrax sightings. People are terrified. And so at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the pressure is on to solve this case quickly. But the agents really don't have much to go on. The letters barely give them any clues.
1: We found no fingerprints. The ink on the envelope was common, too common to be forensically useful. The stamps on the envelopes were pre-printed. They hadn't been licked or touched by human. So in the world of classical forensics, we have nothing, absolutely no leads. And we literally met as a group, the scientists from Quantico, the science agents on the new task force. And we just started brainstorming on a whiteboard.
0: They have no idea who is behind this. Is it the same terrorists who had just attacked the country on 9-11? Or is it an American scientist? Someone they may know? The case ends up taking seven years millions of dollars, 10,000 interviews on six continents, and the invention of a whole new branch of forensics. Today, how did the FBI eventually close this sprawling, complex case? And what still remains
2: a mystery?
0: Scott Decker is a former FBI agent who worked on the anthrax investigation. He got a PhD in human genetics before he came to the bureau, and he spent his first seven years there on the Boston Bank Robbery Task Force. He said, it was kind of like what you see on TV.
1: All the detectives were sitting around sharing ideas. In the old days, we sat in the bullpen. We had our desks butted up against each other. We shared telephones. It was noisy. It was hard to write and concentrate. (laughs)
0: In the late 90s, he joined the Bureau's Hazardous Materials Response Unit. And around the same time, the public becomes newly aware of a very hazardous material, a potential biological weapon, anthrax. The Secretary of Defense goes on ABC's This Week in 1997 to talk about threats the nation faces. And at one point...
1: He held up a five-pound bag of sugar and said this amount of dried anthrax spore would kill half of Washington, DC. Wow. That was yeah, a wow moment.
0: And what
1: is anthrax? Anthrax is a disease. It's similar to today. What's going on? The disease is called COVID. It's caused by coronavirus. So with anthrax, the disease is called anthrax. It's caused by a bacteria, not a virus, Bacillus anthracis.
0: This bacteria occurs naturally. It grows in the soil in dry, arid places. The most common victims of anthrax are actually livestock, like cows in the American Southwest. The deadliest form of anthrax is inhalational. You inhale the spores, and then the bacteria starts growing in your lungs, creating poison byproducts that can kill you. To weaponize anthrax, you create a deadly powder from the bacteria's spores.
1: It's a solid that takes on the form of a gas, scientifically. The way I think about it, if you've ever eaten instant oatmeal in those packages and you dump the package in the bowl, most of it goes in the bowl but there's a small amount of powder that drifts up into the air of the kitchen. That's the deadly part of anthrax. Individual spores make up the powder. It just is so light, it drifts up into the air and people breathe it in.
2: It's difficult to find the words to describe the feeling in New York City today.
0: And then in September 2001, there's a very different attack on the World Trade Center in New York.
2: One of its most famous landmarks destroyed, thousands dead, and America is under siege.
0: Decker goes up to ground zero on September 12th. He's supervising a hazmat team. But he says he quickly realizes, in the wake of this unprecedented attack, that he'd rather be on the ground, investigating.
1: I want to put terrorists in jail. So I demoted myself. I went to the field office, which was largely vacant. It had been evacuated, but the computer still worked. So I typed out a memo. I said, I'm demoting myself back to street agent. Faxed to headquarters.
0: Not long after Decker demotes himself, the FBI starts to hear about something that happened in Florida. A man named Robert Stevens shows up at a hospital, feverish and short of breath, and within hours, he dies. His spinal fluid tests positive for anthrax. Which is a huge surprise.
1: There hadn't been a case of inhalational anthrax in the country since 1976, and usually there it's from textiles, workers working with rawhide. But
0: Robert Stevens was a photo editor at a company called American Media. He worked at a tabloid called The Sun.
1: He worked in an air-conditioned office building, he lived in a hot and humid tourist resort area, and there was no reason for him to come in contact with the anthrax, bacillus anthracis. No reason at all.
0: Still, at first, people think it could be an accident, an isolated incident, maybe he got it on a hike. And Decker told us, in fact, anthrax was so unlikely that some at the FBI thought the CDC might have just gotten the test wrong.
1: We all thought that the CDC blew it. They didn't make the correct diagnosis, but then we had a second victim. At that point, we realized the CDC did have it right and we had a problem on our hands.
0: Very quickly, the FBI realizes these are planned attacks a second and a third employee at American Media test positive for anthrax. Then a letter addressed to anchor Tom Brokaw shows up at NBC News leaking white powder. One of Decker's colleagues at the CDC helped get that powder tested at a lab. And?
1: The public health lab called him and told him, we have zillions of spores. They used the word zillions. And they also said when we tested it by DNA, it is bacillus anthracis. That was one of those uh uh-oh minutes.
0: Then in mid-October, there's the attack at the Senate office building. About a week later, two postal workers die in two days after being exposed to the spores. And the country goes into full anthrax panic mode.
1: When this became a news item on the 7 o'clock, 5 o'clock news reported in the newspapers, a bad side of human nature came out. And people began mailing what we called white powder hoaxes. They would take soap powder, dump it in an envelope, and mail it to a business they just got fired from. Or somewhere accidental, a janitor spilling some cleaning powder and not sweeping it up before he went home from work. All of a sudden, we'd have an anthrax call. October and November of 01, I estimate... We had 50,000 of these each month.
0: 50,000 each month?
1: Yes. We could not collect them all as evidence. There were too many. The fire departments would carry bleach on the truck and just dump them in a bucket of dilute bleach. It was just overwhelming. We were overwhelmed. What saved our bacon, if that's a term I can use. Definitely. What saved our bacon was the network of laboratories.
0: In the late 90s, the CDC and the FBI had realized they might someday need local labs around the country to help them test for biological weapons. So those labs were ready. And now they're working overtime, but these leads are leading nowhere. It's around this time, early November of 2001, that Scott Decker moves from desk duty to the anthrax investigation. Remember, he has a background in science, and he gets assigned to supervise a special science team.
1: I had a squad of special agents, and all of them had advanced degrees in science. I believe it's the first time the Bureau has ever put together a group like that.
0: Because it's becoming clear that the FBI is going to need to use new scientific methods to help them get some traction in this investigation— They're running into problems, even when they try to do the most basic detective work.
1: We couldn't look for fingerprints until we neutralized the anthrax spores.
0: Right, sure, because you couldn't just go touching those envelopes.
1: They were deadly. If you touched them, you were going to get real sick, possibly die. So we ended up deciding to irradiate the envelopes, but we had to validate that the irradiation did in fact kill every spore. So a set of experiments had to be done before we could do the forensic examination. That's how the whole case went. We would come up with a new technique. We would have to validate it before we could put it into play.
0: The irradiation works, but no fingerprints on the envelopes. Decker and his squad have to start thinking about a new kind of forensics— Microbial forensics. Basically, they have to get clues from the bacteria itself. To find whatever the bacteria might be hiding, they first need to read it. And the way you read something like a bacteria is to sequence its DNA. But
1: at that time, the end of 01, beginning of 02, the scientific community had never sequenced Bacillus anthracis in its entirety. It had never been done.
0: But there was a lab in Maryland, run by a scientist named Dr. Claire Frazier-Liggett.
1: And they were really at the cutting edge of DNA sequencing in 2001. They had sequenced, I believe, two bacteria. They knew it could be forensically important, more likely in public health, rather than crime-fighting.
0: So now, the FBI goes to this lab and says, we need your help with crime-fighting we need to sequence the DNA of the spores we found in these letters. The lab says, yes, it'll take some time, but we can figure it out. The agents already know that this anthrax is a strain called AMES, which is one of, if not the deadliest strain of bacillus anthracis. So what they're looking for is any mutation, a change in the genetic code a sort of fingerprint that could help the FBI trace the bacteria's origins, find the Ames spores, and therefore the lab that was used to make this specific powder. Which means the agents need to collect all the Ames samples they can find. They go around to labs, and eventually...
1: We had over a thousand collected samples from around the country and the world. We knew that If we could be successful in this area, we might crack the case. Or we could develop evidence to support another crack in the case.
0: The science will be an integral part of the investigation. But they're still doing their regular detective work, too. In October, the FBI had put together a profile of their potential suspect, criminal mind style.
1: It said it was what they call a lone wolf. An individual working by himself, non-confrontational, highly skilled in science.
0: Also, probably American, because of some clues in the letters themselves. They were written to suggest an international threat. The one to Tom Brokaw read, 9 this is next, take penicillin now, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. But pretty quickly, the investigators realize the date structure is American. Month first, not day. And it's also strange that Allah is great is written in English, not in Arabic. So they think they're looking domestically. And probably for a scientist.
1: The AIM strain was a popular research strain. And it was used in academic and military laboratories for vaccine research and anthrax research. So it was very well thought that it probably came from a scientist who we very well mo- may know. He said that
0: was a strange headspace to be in, going to work every day, thinking.
1: Very likely somebody in this building has done this. They've killed on purpose, so they're going to probably do it again.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
0: The agents are looking for a killer who might be in their midst. In fact, Decker told us the FBI considered a suspect who, for him, was very close to home.
1: These letters were mailed from a mailbox around Trenton, New Jersey. I grew up around Trenton, New Jersey. So I thought I was pretty much on the radar. They never told me. but
0: It was a crazy time. By the end of 2001, the letters had stopped coming. But it takes the FBI years to find a culprit. They do investigate an early suspect who looks promising, a scientist named Stephen Hatfield. People contacted the FBI early in their investigation to voice suspicion that Hatfield was involved. He would have had access to Ames Anthrax, and the list of people with that access wasn't that long. The FBI follows this lead for a while, but eventually it starts to fall apart. Hatfield wasn't the guy. In fact, he later sues the Justice Department over this and wins a large settlement. So the FBI spends a lot of time and money investigating Hatville, who ultimately turns out not to have done it. And years after these attacks, there's been no arrest. No one to blame. But in 2004, there's finally a new lead from the science.
1: A little over two years from when we started the genetic project, we got our first match That match was a milestone. That was the lead. It's not proof,
0: but it gives them something to go on.
1: It pointed to a microbiologist, a civilian employee at USAMRID.
0: USAMRID is a biodefense facility. Full name, the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. The scientist they're looking at…
1: An expert on anthrax. His sole job was to develop anthrax vaccines and test them. His name is Bruce Ivins. Bruce Ivins.
0: Ivins is someone that the FBI had already talked to during the day-to-day goings-on in the investigation.
1: He was just a typical, what we call, nerdy scientist. His screensaver on the computer was a cat. He would juggle for kids after work. He would play piano at church services.
0: He also has some personality quirks. For example, he's obsessed with the activities of one particular college sorority, really fixated on it. But of course, quirks don't make you a killer. The thing is, questions had actually been swirling around Ivan's for years. He'd been on the person of interest list since 2001 because he had access to Ames. And, Decker says, he seemed a little eager to name his co-workers as possible suspects. Ivan's turned over a sample of anthrax from his flask in 2002 during that big FBI collection effort. After that, Decker was sometimes at USAMRID for routine investigation stuff. Not about Ivins specifically, but he'd bump into Ivan's, like in the hallway.
1: Each time I would talk to Ivan's, he would let slip a little bit about more stuff he had in his freezer. More aims. Anthrax.
0: So the FBI does another search of the USAMRID freezer in December of 2003, and they seize a bunch more anthrax, including more samples from Ivins' flask. Those samples end up having the mutation. That's the match, the big lead in the case. But the samples Ivan's gave willingly in 2002 don't. To the FBI, this makes it seem like Ivan's might have submitted a false sample, something he knew wouldn't match the attack anthrax. There's some debate about that, but either way, they continue looking into Ivan's himself. And they find some circumstantial evidence, things that they think look suspicious. In 2002, he tested his office and his lab for anthrax contamination without permission, which was against USAMRID rules. And when the FBI examines entry and exit records, they find that around the time of the attacks, on several occasions, Ivan's had been alone in his lab sometimes late at night.
1: And stayed there for several hours. It was a new pattern. He hadn't done this before.
0: They find that Ivan's had opportunity to send these letters in the time frame he would have needed to, and that the mailbox they were sent from was right near that college sorority he was obsessed with. Eventually, the FBI places Ivan's under surveillance as they're getting their case together to make an arrest. They question him forcefully, pushing him on some of his behavior, and Ivan's is sort of unraveling. During one of his therapy sessions, he makes some threatening statements about hurting his coworkers.
1: At that point, the therapist wasn't bound to confidentiality. He had threatened to kill people. She told the police and a city detective escorted Bruce from his laboratory and banned him from USAMRA grounds.
0: Meanwhile, the FBI is close to making their arrest. But before they can do that, something terrible happens. Bruce Ivins dies by suicide in 2008. Ivins' death means the case can never go to trial.
1: It's one of those moments that we, in law enforcement, we dread. We can't really close the case satisfactorily. There would be no trial, there would be no plea, no airing of our evidence all that would never happen and that's required to really prove somebody guilty in this country
0: still the fbi is pretty sure they had the right guy in 2010 the department of justice releases a report stating that the evidence uncovered in the investigation quote established that dr ivans alone mailed the anthrax letters if they'd gone to court prosecutors would have had to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt But they didn't go to court. And some people do have doubts. In 2011, a panel convened by the National Academy of Sciences releases a report saying that the science alone did not definitively show that the anthrax came from Bruce Ivins' flask. They say it certainly could have come from there, but it's not clear beyond a shadow of a doubt. There could be other possibilities. Claire Fraser Liggett, one of the main scientists that the FBI worked with, told us in an email that she thinks the investigation had some loose ends. She said the science wasn't inconsistent with the idea that Ivans could have been the scientist who produced this material, but that, quote, our data did not address who the mailer was. So basically, the science alone isn't proof. Decker agrees, by the way, he said it wasn't meant to be proof, it was meant as a clue in the investigation. There are some other questions. For example, no anthrax spores were ever found at Ivins' house or in his car. Remember, when that congressional intern opened one of the anthrax letters, it took months to clean the office buildings. So maybe Ivins didn't transport the letters to the mailbox in his car, or maybe he was just super, super clean. Plus, some of Ivan's co-workers have debated whether Ivan's really had the equipment and experience he would have needed to make so much of this deadly powder. The FBI thinks he did. And for Scott Decker, the evidence adds up. He's convinced that the FBI got the right guy. And he says he's proud of the scientific part of the investigation.
1: The amount of work that was done scientifically is huge. Was there more that could have been done? Absolutely. What investigation couldn't you do a little bit more if you had the time, resources. We did not have the luxury of time. We had a serial killer on the loose, able to do this, as far as we knew, anytime he wanted, because we hadn't arrested or neutralized him. That weighs on your mind every day.
0: Sometimes law enforcement people and science people look at the same facts differently. We talked to one journalist, David Wilman, who has covered the anthrax attacks. He told us that in the criminal world, things have to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. But in the scientific world, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. And for everyone involved, perhaps especially the American public, it's hard to live with any doubt at all in a case with life or death stakes. But the good news is that the science is always getting better. The people involved in this case were inventing a whole new field, microbial forensics. But in the years since, That field has gotten more advanced, quicker, cheaper, easier. We just know more, thanks in part to this investigation. So hopefully, if there is a next time, we'll be ready. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. And for history anytime, anywhere, Sign up for a one-month extended free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device, with new videos added every week. To start your free one-month trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosado. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see
2: you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.